Look at chapter 2. Chapter 1 is looking back to the locust plague. Chapter 2, I believe we're looking forward to something else. So, uh, you have to kind of visualize this, and there's there's some debate about, you know, the exact uh, identity of this, but would somebody read chapter 2, verses 1 through 11? Blow the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. A day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come, great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. A fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like swift steeds, so they run. With the noise like chariots, over mountain tops they leap, like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble. Like a strong people set in battle array, before them the people writhe in pain. All faces are drained of color, they run like mighty men, they climb the wall, like men of war, every one marches in formation, and they do not break ranks. They do not push one another, every one marches in his own column. <coughs> Though they lunge between the weapons, they are not cut down. They run to and fro in the city, they run on the wall, they climb into the houses, they enter at the, window, at the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for strong is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, who can endure it? Okay. In verse 1, blow a trumpet. Now remember that because we're going to come across that again. But in this case, the trumpet is being used for what? Alarm. Alarm. Warning. Whoa, there's something really bad coming. Something that all the inhabitants of the land must tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. We're picking up on chapter 1 verse 15 and now he's describing the impending terrible day of the Lord. The locust plague and the drought of chapter 1, in my judgment, were kind of like the foreshadowing of the real day of the Lord. You thought chapter 1 was bad? Whoa, it was nothing. Verse 2, a day of darkness, gloom, clouds, big darkness, because there's this great and mighty people that there's never been anything like it that are going to come and devastate us. Now, trying to figure out how he's depicting the day of the Lord here is one of the challenges of the book of Joel. In Joel, the question marks are often more overall interpretive things. There's several overall interpretive questions. For me, I, this is probably the, the traditional view, it, it seems reasonable to me at this point, is that he is describing the day of the Lord as sort of a mammoth locust plague. 
You're the mother of all locust plagues. You thought what you just got was bad? Whoa, this is terrible. So I'm envisioning this army of locusts that are just, wow, they're just terrible. Verse 3, it's like a fire that just burns everything to the ground. So in verse 3, before this plague comes through, what's the, what are things like? Garden of Eden, and after? Yeah, whoa. You know, kind of undoing creation. Uh, nothing at all escapes them. They look like horses. They, they, the sound they make is like chariots. They leap on the top of mountains. They're like a mighty people. You know, I'm seeing, I'm seeing this, this group of commando locusts that just kind of march relentlessly, unstoppably, and they just mow through everything. Kind of reminds you of, of what I guess Blitzkrieg would have been. Uh, Hitler's, you know, army that just wipes them out. You know, and how do people, how do people encounter these in verse 6? That's a good word. Yes. I mean, the blood drains from their faces. They're just panic-stricken. And here's this mighty man climbing the wall, marching in line, relentless, unstoppable. Nothing can get in their way. They just march through. They break through everything. They come to the city. They run on the wall. They climb to the houses. They enter the windows. And it just, you, it's just... It's just horrible. Remorseless purpose. They're driven. They just go through. The earth just quakes. The sun and the moon grow dark. The stars grow dark. This is the Lord's army in verse 11 that he is commanding. His word is strong. The day of the Lord is great and very awesome. And who can endure it? If Judah hadn't been able to withstand the onslaught of the insects, how much less the army of God's wrath depicted as a horrible army of locusts. This is what he's warning them about. Comments and questions? Look. What makes you say that these are locusts and not an army of locusts? Good question, and that's a debated question. Um... I don't know, it just seems like the the imagery, like in verse 3, they sort of burn everything and leave a desolate wilderness behind, uh, would be more a locustist image than an army image. Um, verse 7. Yes. Says they do things like men and like soldiers. Right. That's what they would be if they were an army. Right. So it seems like he's comparing this to an army. And there's many other descriptions throughout the, the verses as well. Like in verse 9, talking about they, they run on the wall, they enter into the windows. Um, the sun and moon go dark, so you can imagine like this. You've seen these swarms of locusts as they come over, you know, light becomes very dim because of the numbers. So I mean, there's just things all throughout the thing that, that are very descriptive of what you would think of as a. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, like I say, that's a debated issue, but it just, the whole language to me fits that. 
doesn't make a great deal of difference. I mean, however he's depicting it, I think the thing that we need to see is how just uh, things that happen in, in life that are really bad ought to make us think how much worse God's ultimate judgment can and will be. That's a really, I mean, you know, I think I think trying to use bad things in life as warnings. You know, have you ever been badly burned? And then think, you know, God depicts hell as a furnace of fire. You know, wow. Have you ever, you know, I don't know, had horrible bugs crawling over you, you know? And can you think of a place where the worm does not die? You know, and things like that. You know, have you ever been in a cave when they turned all the lights off and you just couldn't see anything? Imagine a place where there's never any light. You know, things like that, trying to, and, and just taking setbacks in this life and really horrible things and thinking, you know, this is really nothing. You know, what I'm dealing with now, the day of the Lord is so much worse. So I think Joel wants them to see that however you want to see what's happening in chapter 2, it's saying that the day of the Lord that's coming is horrific. There's not words to describe how horrible it is. Because chapter 1 wasn't good. <laughs> Say. I guess a couple of things. One, what makes you think that in chapter 1, this looks play is coming through. I use the word play. Yeah, it's fine. Um, is different than the one he's saying here. I, I almost wonder if it's not in chapter 1, it says this thing is coming. In chapter 2, he's showing how bad it's going to be. Um, what makes you think they're separate? Well, um, I, I would say because he seems to be describing in chapter 1 something that has already happened. You know, something that they never heard about, that needs to be told about. And, and I think he's describing it in terms of something that they've already experienced, whereas in chapter 2, you're sounding the alarm for something that's impending, for something that's coming. So I think he's, it's it just kind of the difference of perspective. Chapter 1, what has happened. Chapter 2, what's about to happen. Okay. Uh, also in chapter 2, verse 20, I have a problem. It's hard for me, I'm kind of on the fence, depending upon whether it's a literal plague or a figure one. Obviously, that's the big, the big challenge of whether this is picturing an army or an actual literal locust plague. But in verse 20, we talked about dry away the northern army. A lot of this, a lot of the modern prophets and the prophets use that picture of either Babylon or the other nations that were coming to to uh, take down Judah or whatever. And it was being trapped by the eastern and western sea in verse 20. Um, I don't know. If I'm thinking literally here, a sea is not going to stop a plague of locusts like a fly. You know, so it's, for me, it's like. If we're looking at this thing literally, yeah, it says you can run like men, but also a sea is not going to hinder a locust plate that's trying to wait for the Lord. So, we're describing the day of the Lord in chapter 2 as if it were a terrible locust plague. And we are imagining this mythical locust swarms being driven off into the sea and being drowned in the sea and stinking. I think it's probably about as easy to imagine as driving an army here into the sea. Probably neither one are things that you would normally see. 
but I think that is what he's seeing. We'll see a little bit more when he comes to 220. You know, I think he is picking up on the figure of the enemy of God's people coming out of the north. I think that is why he uses the northern army. I think we go back to some of the images of Jeremiah and so forth. Um, you know, again, it's probably not critical that we know how to look at this. But to me, it just fits more the language to see this as a locust play. But if you want to see it as, in chapter 2, God sending some horrible army as the uh, expression of the ultimate day of the Lord, it's really not going to change anything as far as what we're seeing happen here. Other comments and questions through 2.11? Yeah, my thoughts on verse 6. I think verse 6 is interesting. It says the people red in pain, all faces are drained. I just like picture them all like sick of their stomachs. You know what I mean? It's just like they're like, they don't know what to do. Yeah, yeah I mean, you know, I think it's just sharp, uh, stark terror. There's a word for that, but sharp terror. <laughs> stark, I guess, is better. It's just, uh, you know, it's just horrible. It's just like, you see it and you just practically faint. It's, it's, it's overwhelming. And when, when, when the Bible describes the effect of something on people, often it's trying to help us see more what that thing is really like. Larry? Right here, when 9-11 hit, had, there were, of course, pictures in the paper and pictures of people standing back watching these towers collapse. And you can see the terror and the horror in their faces of what in the world is going on in that it almost reminds me of this picture. I mean, people are just standing with their, their, their faces white from, from terror and shock and just, and just drained of, you know. Yeah. If, if you can imagine being, you know, one of those farmers when you're out in your field and you're just getting ready for the harvest and you're just... <laughs> 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 of locusts coming to your crops. You, you could imagine that's what your face would look like. <laughs> <laughs> My life would just would be wiped away in just a few moments. So you can imagine that's out of there, that's how I feel. That's how I look at least. <laughs> yeah, I'm sort of imagining in chapter two this kind of uh, depicted locust plague. I, I'm sort of envisioning, you know, these are actually locusts marching. You've got just, you know, they're everywhere. I mean, it's just this this huge thing, you can't get around it. And, and it's like they've got, like, like they are miniature choppers. They're like, <laughs> and they just mow it all down. That's my vision. <laughs> did you ever read the Yes, I did. Do you remember the part about the locusts? No, I don't. Okay, they have a locust farm. I'm not even kidding. And they did that. Like the locusts, they came in and like they ate all the crops. And then when they left, they marched. Like they didn't Whoa. play, they walked. And they, like they would come in the house and they like... So they had to close the window, and they like marched across the river, and a whole bunch of them died until they like filled up the river, and then the other ones just walked across. Like no, that's what the book says. <laughs> and that is a fictional book, you know. <laughs> two or three times though, but that was like uh, 40 some well, years ago. So. It, wasn't, it was probably like one of the sequels, you know, like there's a whole series of Little House awesome Yeah, yeah, I read them all. Oh, okay. Yeah, I love yeah. them. <laughs> but that was, that was like, you know, 42, 43 years ago when I was reading those. So. I've forgotten a few details. <laughs> Part of that is kind of common though, because as the locusts go through an area, they'll, you know, they'll make some things that are moving along and as they catch 
in their young form, they don't have wings. So they, they do crawl up and mess okay. with them. Okay. Well, that's good to know. <laughs> I don't know if first 2 verse 25 helps us because he says the swarming locusts, and he says my great army that he sent. I don't know if that helps us decide if it was a locust or an army. Well, maybe, although that's going to depend a little bit on our interpretation of that section. I'm going to see that section as reversing chapter 1. But, that's where, uh, as I say, you know, some of these big issue things in, in Joel are big and how you see some different things. This is the minor question so far. We'll get into some more major issues as far as just how you look at this. But good, good comments. Other comments and thoughts, yeah. Uh, Proverbs 30, verse 27 says, The locusts have no king, yet they go forth all of them by bands. It's just interesting how, you know, they don't have a head honcho locust leading the pack, but yet all of them go forth in rank. And, they, you know, it's, it depicts them that way. They're marching, and they're very organized in their destruction. <laughs> well, you know, those kind of things are kind of cool, aren't they? I mean, how do swarms operate? You've got, I mean, I don't know, I've never seen a swarm of locusts, but I've seen like swarms of bees. I mean, how many, I don't know, I guess we're looking at, what, tens of thousands of bees in a swarm, I don't know. And I mean, they like all massively just go. I remember coming home one day from school, and there was this big swarm, a huge swarm of bees in the backyard. It just appeared there. You know, they just, I migrate, I don't know what they've done, just come, and there they were, you know, all of them, <laughs> you know, and just real compact, you know, a few flying out from it, but mostly, it, you couldn't see through it, it's just, you know, just have all these bees clumped together, you know, how do they do that, it's, it's pretty amazing, just the whole idea of swarms of things being able to operate in, in group like that. I wonder how often they run into each other. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have a few uh, bee headaches knocked into each other, John. Most of us have seen swarms of birds like that. Yes. Where you know, they just darken the sky all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah, like they just fly in this massive formation. Yeah, it is amazing. You know, wonder who, who tells them to go and why do they all, you know, follow the same uh, thing? Evolution. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Sir? Some more Oh, thank you. <laughs> Just that, and you may have already mentioned this, but we look at this and we go, oh, well, locusts wouldn't be a problem today. But they're still a problem. I mean, uh, as little as 100 years ago, that I was reading a nonfiction book about <laughs> Some, I mean, besides general study in the Old Testament, a lot. Um, 
Um, I mean, is there, is there a big reason why people are confused that this is men or locusts? You know, I, I guess because this first time, I think honestly, I've ever read Joel the Land. I mean, verse 7, usually when you see what's the, like similes like this, when it says like, I mean, when it say they, when it say like they run, or like, when it say like they are mighty men or something, but it says they run like mighty men, and they climb the wall like men of war. I mean, I don't know, it just makes me believe that it'd be locusts, that they're so continuing on that thought. I don't know, just because they use the word like. It's I think it's a good argument. But, I mean, I don't, obviously I'm not. I don't argue well positions that are different from mine. So <laughs> it takes somebody who believed the other way to argue that well. But they have their arguments. Yes? I think part of it is just we've been doing the minor prophets at church and every single prophet that happened before Babylon came was about Babylon. So, it's like putting it within the context of the whole Old Testament. It's hard to discern whether they're actually talking about locusts or if they're talking about Babylon or if they're talking about a day of the Lord after Babylon. Good point. And my view is that these are depicted as locusts, not necessarily that the day of the Lord will be a locust point. But yes, that's right. And, And again, we get the point even if we're not sure exactly what he's describing, even if we envision different ways. The point is, the day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? That, don't we have some of those same questions? Even, say, about eternal punishment, I've heard people talking about, well, you know, is the fire literal, and, you know, all this kind of stuff, and, you know, what's it really going to be like? Well, I mean, you know, bottom line is, I don't think we really know exactly what it's going to be like. I hope we never find out. But it's, it's terrifying, it's devastating. I mean, whatever debates you might have about how to interpret some of the details of the descriptions that Jesus gives, it's horrifying. That's the point. This is, this is terrible, any way you look at it. And his warning is, you just went through something difficult, think about how much worse it's going to be if you don't repent. You know, God's chasing. The, the, the bad things he lets us go through is supposed to teach us something. It's supposed to keep us from worse things. You know, years ago, uh, I lived for a summer with Auden Verna McKee. And Verna had four boys. And she always used to tell how when she spanked her boys, she would say, I'm not spanking you so that I'll like you. I'll always like you. I'm spanking you so that other people will like you. (laughs) And, you know, God chastens us. He brings us through chapter 1's locust plague so we don't have to go through chapter 2's day of the Lord. But some people don't listen. Sometimes we go through all these terrible things and we see it and instead of turning back to God and thinking, wow, how much worse it's going to be if I don't straighten up, some people just blindly continue on in their sin. That's what Joel's saying, straighten up. We'll see that in the next section, because what you've already experienced is nothing compared to what he will do to you if you don't repent. Anything else through 11? Look at the next section, 12 to 17. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. And he relents from doing harm. 
Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, grain offering for a drink offering, or for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babes. Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber, and the bride from her dressing room. Let the priests who minister to the Lord meet between the porch and the altar. Let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach, that the nations should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? A great passage. This is the exhortation that flows from the warning about the impending day of the Lord. Even now declares the Lord, do what? Return to me. How should they return? With all their heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Moderate repentance will not do. This is radical repentance. This is not just trimming the tree of sin. It's cutting it down. Turn back to me with all your heart. And tear up your heart and not your clothes. Sometimes people are big into the ceremonies of repentance. He says tear your heart. Grieve. Mourn. You know, make this this serious. And return to the Lord your God. What good might it do to return? Get rid of the luggage. Yes. That's right. Perhaps the Lord will turn and relent. Maybe he'll leave a blessing back. Maybe he'll even give you the grain offering and the drink offering so you can fulfill the covenant again. Now, he uses that who knows whether. I think so that they don't shrug off the seriousness of the situation. Sometimes we are too quick to think, well, I'll just repent, I'll forgive me. That'll be that. You know, sometimes we think that even before we sin. You ever done that? Well, I, you know, God will forgive me, so I'll just be sure and ask for forgiveness right after I do it. That's a really dangerous, horrible attitude. That hardens us about as quick as anything. And I don't think we have the right to quite presume on God's, um, you know, being so easily fooled as that. You know, God is not under obligation to forgive us. You know, we can't just say, well, I pray God has to forgive me. We have to have some humility about the fact that, that he doesn't have to do that. He is, thank God. Thank God He is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. That gives us hope. Perhaps He will. But repentance doesn't force God to forgive us. So He's encouraging, He's, he's imploring real repentance with the hope that God might bless them. Gary Henry writes one article and he he challenges us to repent before we sin, which says, you know, before I even get that far that I turn from that way. And I, that was a real challenge for me to consider. That's a good point. 
think it's important, and i think this text brings that out, is that we ourselves deal honestly with god in our minds in the sense of realizing our repentance needs to be complete and not just a part of ourselves. because i think a lot of times we compartmentalize sin in our lives, saying, i'm this isn't as bad as it really is, when it is that terrible. and us being honest with ourselves as well as with God about the seriousness of the covenant that we break um, is extremely important. And this text, you know, it says, rain your hearts, not your garments, you know, be grieved in your soul, not just outwardly. And that's a challenge for us sometimes. Sometimes we may cry a little bit over the effect, the consequence of our sin, but does it really bother us deeply? That we hurt God. That we disgraced the one who loved and died for us. You know, sometimes what we need is just a lot more grief. You know, there is no such thing as griefless repentance. You know, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7, I'm really happy that my letter made you so sad. (laughs) Not that I want you to be sad, but that the sorrow led you to repentance. There's no easy way. To repent. Sometimes we are always looking for some kind of analgesic to take away the pain. To give us a spiritual aspirin so we don't feel bad. Well, feeling bad is one of those things we've got to have to help us repent and help us stay repentant. You know, we, you know we're always trying to, psychologists or whatever, are always trying to deal with the, the guilt. You take away the guilt. Well, there is a proper function of guilt that we really need. And uh, that's what he's saying here. I mean, that's rending your heart. That's rather painful. You know, can you imagine tearing your heart? Something would hurt. And that's what he wants it to do. John? Sometimes sin is referred to as missing the mark. That doesn't sound so bad, but uh, sin is more than missing the mark. It's, as you pointed out, it's an offense against a holy God. Now that's a whole lot more, has a whole lot more serious tone to it. Yes, and we need to see that personalness of the offense of sin. Have you ever done something that really hurt somebody? You know, maybe some friend of yours, and I don't know. You were, you were not being real responsible. You were not using your head. And you really hurt them. You know, I mean, I hope you haven't done something just devastating to somebody. That's really horrible. But how did you feel when you hurt them? It was somebody you cared about. I mean, wow. Can you imagine? I don't know. I, hope, I, I, hate, I hesitate to use example, you know, theoretical example, it could have happened to somebody here and, and these things would be really painful. I mean, can you imagine perhaps even being irresponsible with, a, with an automobile and, and, and having a wreck that, that actually hurt somebody you love, you know, seriously? I mean, wow, how would you feel? It would be so devastating. You know, just feel horrible. You know, if you'd apologize over and over and over and over and over and over again, you'd still feel so hurt. You know, that, that your responsibility caused your friend to suffer so much. And I can imagine just, you know, just being overwhelmed by, by that. 
we don't tend to feel that with God. Because I think we don't see Him as personal. And so we can think of the sin as well, we just missed the mark, as if it were just sort of technicality, instead of a personal offense against a Father who loves us. Larry. Uh, I, I used this last Sunday night. I, I, I've been reading just something to kind of take my mind off the things. Uh, I was reading about Bill Cosby. And uh, when he was a young boy growing up, his dad was, was a heavy drinker. And uh, he ended up, his father ended up joining the Navy and was a, like a cook or something. And so he was gone for long periods of time. And mother, Bill Cosby's mother, would try to be mother and father to the boys. But she was not a disciplinarian. And whenever the boys would just act up, that all she would do, she would just break down and cry. She would just, she would just start crying. And Bill Cosby says, as he got older, he said the thing that stopped him most from doing things that were wrong is that he would always picture his mother crying. And he did not want to see her cry. He loved her that much, and she meant that much to him. That just the thought of doing something wrong would break her heart and it kept him from doing a lot of things. I thought that was pretty powerful. Very powerful. We need to see sin as affecting God like that. Right. I think for, uh, I guess sort of an encouragement, uh, if you don't like this idea, is uh, what I do when I think of, like about a year and a half ago, I had this friend that I met for five or six years, and we were kind of, uh, you know, getting to be on the rocks where we weren't as close friends, and, and uh, I, I really can't remember what it was like a year and a half ago. I, I made, I slipped that part open my mouth about something to someone else about something that he had done or something along those lines that I can he gave me a call I mean I got a call pretty quick but I think it was that same day he found out that I said whatever I said and uh, and it it really hurt the way he's, the way he worded it and no one's ever said anything like this before he's like he, I mean, he worded it pretty much word for word like he said something like I expected this from so and so but not from you and I could I could hear the seriousness in his voice I really didn't think that I mean we weren't that close anymore. I guess I, I, I allowed them to say whatever I said. And, um, I use that, and I think we all can and should. If we have our time knowing how God feels like, I don't know, I use things that oh, I've messed up to people in this life. Sometimes that helps me to realize how much I'm hurting God, because it's, sometimes it's difficult. We can't hear God's, like, sorrow. Like, when we hurt Him, like, it's not like He's telling us, like, you know what I mean? So I, I think I've done cases like that in my life where I've heard my friends like how I've hurt them, and I, I use that as uh, encouragement to do better and to not, you know, I, I think that's something good to go off of, I guess, it helps me. So. Good point. Yeah, good point. Yes. I think often we don't recognize that it's a blessing to, to understand uh, someone's pain, um, uh, to be able to not, a, not only, I mean, it's not like we're going to be there for God, you know, and comfort Him, but somebody who may be going through uh, distrust, um, like God, like, so we can be there for each other like that. I think it's, I think these things happen so we do understand how much we hurt each other um, and how much, and how we can feel God through each other. Um, so he says in verse 15 blow a trumpet in Zion that's what he said in verse 1 wasn't it blow a trumpet in Zion but in this case what's he blowing the trumpet for encouraging them to blow the trumpet for call the people yes 
This is the trumpet to assemble the people. And uh, who's supposed to come? Everybody. How much of everybody? Yeah, like everybody, everybody, even the bridegroom and the bride, you know, suspending their honeymoon. And do you remember the situation with newly married people? What was their situation in the Old Covenant? Not unclean. They got a year of... He didn't have to go to war. A year uh, exemption from even military service because God considered marriage so important that they need to spend that first year together. But this is so critical. You call them out of the honeymoon to assemble them together to weep between the porch and the altar to beg God to spare them. This is this is so so horrible. Everybody stops everything, a fast, a solemn assembly, and the priest leading the people to beg God not to make them a reproach, a byword among the nations, and not to make it to where the nations would say, where's their God? So, he's really exhorting the nation to repent and turn back to God. Comments and questions? On the contrast, and look at here in two fifteen in the beginning in two one, where it's the the trumpet as a warning. Here's the trumpet as a call to gather, and also the people that he calls. And in the beginning of chapter one, he talks about the elders and the children. Seeing I hear seen support, and talk about the bridegroom and the bride before the bridegroom and the husband or because he has died. Just the idea of him calling these these people back. It's the idea of this. I guess of writing what had been what had happened in chapter one. You can see that contrast here. It's the Lord using this trumpet not only to warn but also to this call for Amen. Other comments and questions? Yes, sir. And this this is also actually in verse fourteen, where they're told to consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land. And cry out. So they're t- the same, essentially the same group of people are told to come together and, and cry out, do the same things again for the same reason, really. Exactly. Other comments and questions, right? Well, so in this, in verse 16, we're talking about the bride and the groom. I mean, this, so this is referring to the honeymoon, most likely. Though. I think so. Is that, what is chamber? I, my word is this chamber. I think it might be the honeymoon suite. That's what, that's what I assume that is going to refer to it. Because it says regressed from there, but I just figure it's probably not. Well, if it was saying the honeymoon, why wouldn't it say calls to the same people if they were in the same place? Chamber and then dressing room. Yeah, wherever. They're, he's saying, you know, stop the wedding, stop the honeymoon, whatever. The idea is they have no exemption even though they're really married. What if, what, I mean, I don't, I don't hear the word chamber at all. Like, what is chamber in there? When, like, the rightness, you know, like, just in that actual day and age, what is it really? Like, we have our honeymoon space. So I mean, like, you know what? I don't really know if the word chamber is in our place. 
it's just root. Another word is root. really okay. Judge comes out as chambers. Don't they say that? I think they do. He comes out as root. It's kind of a weird word, isn't it? <laughs> Somebody's got it better. Well, who's got a better, another translation in the end of verse 16? When it says, the bride out of her. Anybody got anything other than that? What do you got? I think that's just a formal word for her. Yeah, it is. I, I, I just thought maybe a translation would do something. Pause Closet? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Coming out of the closet has a little different significance. Change meaning. Uh, <laughs> uh, right, other comments and questions. All right, I think this is a good spot to take a break. Um, this is kind of the break in the book. So uh, let's take a break for a few minutes and we'll come back and work on the rest of the show.